Welcome to the 350th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with David W. Brown, author of the brand new book, The Mission. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is David Brown, author of the new nonfiction book, The Mission, about an upcoming NASA space project to explore one of Jupiter's moons. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Great. Well, before we jump into the questions about this upcoming NASA space project, I do want to, I, I do have to note that your book has one of the longest, most interesting subtitles that I'm aware of. And for the listen, for the listeners, here's the subtitle of the mission. How a disciple of Carl Sagan, an ex motocross racer, a Texas Tea Party congressman, the world's worst typewriter saleswoman, California mountain people and an anonymous NASA functionary went to war with Mars, survived an insurgency at Saturn, traded blows with Washington, and stole a ride on an Alabama moon rocket to send a space robot to Jupiter in search of the second Garden of Eden at the bottom of an alien ocean inside of an ice world called Europa. A true story. So how did you and your editor decide on the subtitle? Well, I was I was stridently anti-subtitle, and uh, my editor wanted a subtitle with five or six words, and so we compromised at 83 words. <laughs> so did you end up coming up with it? Right. I, I, I started uh, after I eventually relented, um, as it was explained to me, how having a good subtitle helped sell the book or helped explain the title. Um, I decided, well, if they want a subtitle, I'm going to give them one. And so I set about writing what I considered to be an honest subtitle. They say that, uh, an author's greatest challenge is living up to his or her subtitle. So I wanted there to be some truth, uh, when the reader gets to this book, they know exactly what they're getting. And, uh, it, the book and the book is a yarn and I felt like the subtitle should be one as well. That's great. And what, how, what was their response when you sent them the subtitle? To my editor's credit, he loved it. He he had to go to bat for me 
with his superiors at the publishing house and uh and he did and and they eventually bought into it it was it was pretty great of him that's great well your book the mission is about an upcoming nasa space mission to explore europa one of the moons of jupiter can you explain the basics of the planned mission when is it supposed to launch and what what uh will the mission entail exactly so the mission is about the the small team of scientists and engineers who 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 spent 20 years trying to come up with this mission trying to c- convince nasa to fly a spacecraft to europa which is a, an ocean moon of jupiter um the spacecraft itself is going to launch in in a 2025 let's say plus or minus 6 months it depends on the uh, rocket available and it'll have a 6 year cruise phase to get to jupiter but uh, what awaits the spacecraft at, at Jupiter itself is um, is a pulsing, rippling halo of death called the Jovian Radiation Belt, um, whose conditions are not unlike the immediate aftermath of a detonated thermonuclear bomb. Um, the spacecraft, rather than marinate in that radiation, which is where Europa's engulfed, um, it's going to orbit Jupiter and encounter Europa multiple times. Um, when you say encounter uh, Europa, so will it? Uh, you said it's it's, it's going to um, uh, it's going to to be in the the uh, it's going to circulate around Jupiter. Will will it send out a probe to Europa? How, how's how's that going to work? There are instruments on the spacecraft itself. So if you if just for to make it simple, if you imagined we had a camera on the moon pointing at the Earth. Um, are pointing at just a thin strip of the Earth. As the moon continuously circled the Earth, eventually it would get all sides as the Earth spun, as the uh, as the moon made its way in its various strange orbit that it has. And Europa Clipper works a lot like that. The spacecraft will stay in Jupiter's orbit, and Jupiter's right. enormous, so it'll 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 circle Jupiter. It'll take a while, and then it'll. Eventually, it'll fly by Europa, and it'll scan one small strip of Europa, and then it'll fly away, and it'll point it'll point its antenna at Earth. It'll return all the data that it collected. It'll circle Jupiter again, and again, it'll fly by Europa again each time it orbits. Each time it does so, it does so in a different orientation. Uh, the, the effect of this is eventually it'll get a 360-degree view of Europa without actually having to go into European orbit, which would be – uh, enormously difficult because of the radiation. Right. Right. Um, and, and so will it, what, um, do they, do they think about this? I'm just curious, like, what is the, the lifespan and, and do they plan on like what happens at the end or will it just stay in Jupiter's orbit? Um, do they plan the end? How, how does that work exactly? The, the prime mission, um, is going to is going to characterize Europa, and that's going to take that's going to take quite a while. Um, eventually, I mean, several years into this, so this spacecraft will last years, hopefully. I mean, unless something terrible happens, um, eventually they're going to have to decide what to do with it. Either it'll stay in Europa's orbit and act as some, or stay in Jupiter's orbit and act as like a communications relay for some future spacecraft, uh, or maybe when it comes time to deorbit it. Uh, they won't crash it into Europa because Europa might have life. So instead they would probably crash it into a different world or maybe into Jupiter itself. Personally, I would like to see him. I'd like to see him crash it into IO, 
which is a vol- the most active volcano, uh, the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Um, and it would be one heck of a fireworks show. We would see those images through to the end. Sure. So a, a space project of this size takes years. How did you decide to write about this project? And what was the process for you to gain access to the NASA scientists and engineers working on this? The um, As a storyteller, I'm always on the lookout, obviously, for a good story and certainly something with, with high stakes. When I first heard about the Europa mission, I realized almost at once that there's no human endeavor that has higher stakes than this. So what what the spacecraft is searching for at Europa is habitability. Europa has all of the ingredients necessary for life and not just ancient microbes that went extinct billions of years ago, but extant complex life today. Maybe microbes, but maybe fish. I mean, maybe sea monsters. What would such life, how would humans approach that sort of life? So every, every living creature that you or I or any human ever to live or any animal ever to live has ever encountered has come from a single origin. Some, some moment uh, millions of years ago where, where life came from lifelessness. Um, when we look at Europa, that would be its own genesis. It would have its own moment where life came from lifelessness totally unrelated to us. So it would be truly alien life. Um, What would that mean to us in terms of religion, right? A second garden of Eden. What would that mean to us in terms of philosophy, right? Are we alone? Where did we come from? And we would be able to really come to grips with those sorts of issues. And and moreover, I think it's interesting to consider uh, how would we treat that life? I mean, Whenever I go to a restaurant and eat fish, right, I've earned the right to eat that fish because my ancestors 100,000 years ago uh, established the fish and the human's place on the food chain. Uh, but a fish on Europa, we, we certainly wouldn't have that, that understanding, would we? We wouldn't have earned anything. So would, would we even consider them animals? What does it even mean for, an, for humans to encounter another life form? These things are not... I mean, they're the domain of science fiction, but these are things that are going to be addressed in our lifetime. And it's important that we get started on that conversation. Well, your your book is a work of creative nonfiction where you go into the heads of the engineers and people that you write about. Why did you decide to write the book in that particular way? Well, I knew right away um, the, the subject could be intimidating. Um, this is a book about science and scientists for people who don't read books about science and scientists. And I wanted to make sure to, to sort of ground the story in very old storytelling methods, right? When you read this story, it should have a lyrical style. Creative nonfiction is very much bringing in the elements of fiction and the elements of poetry into your nonfiction in order to tell the story. I wanted the story to read as though it were being told aloud by a campfire, the way the Iliad might have been told, you know, for, for generations before it was actually written down. This book is the first time that story was written down. Um, accordingly, um, people who people need to bring nothing to the story. You need to have no education in astrophysics or, or biology. I certainly didn't. Um, but you should still be able to read the story. You will read the story, and everything you need, you'll you'll get from the story, both in terms of its style 
and also in terms of the way that this stuff is explained. Um, it, it, if, if I did it right, the, the prose should almost feel like you could, you could burst into song. It should be that lyrical. And so given that, um, and I'm not sure that every science writer would characterize their writing the way that you just did, what was the writing process like for you to, to um, get the prose to a point where you feel like you, you know, it can be sung aloud or, sure. or, I, or read next to a campfire? I think, um, no, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not saying this as a, in an arrogant way. I, I, I can, I don't think a, a book like this has ever been written um, in the field of science, certainly not in planetary science. Um, this is sort of breaking new ground. And I, and I did very much want the reader to um, come away, not only with the appreciation for um, what these people did, the people that I write about, but also a new appreciation for what nonfiction can do. Um, the process for writing it, it took, it took seven years. It involved interviews with over a hundred people. It involved reading more science papers than I care to, uh, than I care to think about um, science papers are not exactly beach reading. I can assure you. And um, it, it was a, it was an enormous task. I didn't know when I set out on this project, just how difficult it would be. Um, it might actually have scared me away, but, but I was so inspired by the story I was hearing that um, I wanted to make sure that I did justice to their life's work. So when, when you're reading this book, you're reading, everything I've got, this is all I got in me. This is this culmination of my, my life's experiences. And, um, so, so I gave them, I I'd like to think what they gave us. Well, given all the very human problems that we face in the U S there's a contingent of people who frown upon the money spent on space exploration. I'm curious, given your work on this book and all that you learned about the team uh, who worked on this project? What would your argument be for space exploration? That's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked it. First, I, th- I, I do think that the argument that for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. Well, we have so many problems down here. Why are we spending money up there? I think it's a very disingenuous argument because it implies that we can't explore space until we've solved all the problems in the world. 
I mean, no human endeavor could ever meet such a threshold. But I also think there's a misconception or generally impoverished understanding of just how little money NASA gets. People might think it takes, it gets 25, 30% of the federal budget because of the extraordinary achievements that go into, and into what NASA does and how visible they are and how consequential we know on some, like in our marrow that that work is. In fact, NASA gets one half of 1% of the federal budget. Um, planetary exploration gets a quarter of that. So, Americans annually spend more money on chewable dog toys than they do on space exploration, as I've written about in the mission. <laughs> That's a good yeah. stat. Yeah. Um, so what was the biggest obstacle in NASA? And as you just mentioned, the kind of budgetary um, constraints for the planetary exploration, what was the biggest obstacle um, in the Europa Clipper project? Europa is, is, is uniquely positioned um, in the solar system in that, as I, when I discussed the, 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 it exists in, in, in massive radiation and it's very difficult to, for robots to get to. It's impossible for humans to get to uh, the radiation belt is that, is that fierce or, or the Jovian radiation belt is that fierce. Um, so technologically, it, this is a non-trivial body to explore. Um, politically, there's no real gain by supporting space exploration and certainly not exotic space exploration like that of Europa. Um, no one ever won an election saying, I'm going to support this mission that's going to find fish in an alien ocean. Um, at NASA, because they get so little money, if you're given the choice, do we explore Mars where astronauts might one day walk? Or do we explore someplace like Europa? But it could also be Titan, right? The, a moon of Saturn or, or Enceladus or wherever it might be. Do we, go, do, we do, the, do we go with the sure thing or do we go with the, the maybe or the difficult or the, the in some cases, impossible? Um, and NASA wisely, I think, in a lot of instances, chose the easy. I mean, they, they are easy with an asterisk, of course. This is a relative statement. Um, because astronauts will one day walk on Mars, those robots, those rovers that we see, the Pat, the, uh, the, um, Perseverance rover that's going to land right. in a couple of weeks. Um, those are more than science missions. Those are human precursor missions. They're right. buying that da- they're buying down risk for future astronauts. Um, you can't say the same thing for Europa. You can't say the same thing for uh, Titan, for example. Um, so that's that that's that's that was probably the most pressing challenge is 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 overcoming that. But the stakes of the mission were so high that inevitably NASA decided we we've got to do this thing. And the science community was was in lockstep behind it. They wanted to see this body explored because of its its obviously its life questions, but also there are some interesting questions of geology that get to be explained and its cryosphere and and uh just the nature of the Jovian radiation belt and and what it does to a moon like that. Well, you mentioned earlier that um, a rocket will lift the Europa Clipper into Earth orbit. Um, and then I'm assuming it has its own rockets to get up from Earth to Jupiter? So the way, it, the way it, this particular uh, spacecraft is going to work, um, it, it's almost certainly going to launch on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. Um, that's a pretty big rocket. Um, 
It's not big enough to send the spacecraft on a direct flight to Jupiter, though. The solar system's big and gravity's harsh, and um, it, it takes a lot, of, a lot of power to do that. So instead, what it's going to do is what's called a mega trajectory, M-E-G-A. It's a Mars-Earth gravity assist. So what's going to happen is the rocket will launch, and it's going to fling the spacecraft to Mars. The spacecraft is going to um, take some of Mars's gravity and get slung around back to Earth. Because remember, these planets are continually moving. The spacecraft will come back to Earth, fly by the Earth, pick up a whole bunch of Earth's gravity, and essentially gets slingshotted all the way to Jupiter. So wow. it's, it's basically free fuel, but there, it, the pilot is going to be Isaac Newton. That's amazing. Uh, and I'm wondering, I'm assuming that you have a sense of the size of uh, this clipper. So, so for the listeners, can you give us a sense? I mean, are we talking about the size of a car? We're talking about the size of an 18 wheeler. What, what's the, what's the dimensions of this, uh, um, satellite probe that's going to go to Jupiter? The spacecraft itself, including the enormous solar panels that it's going to bring in order to, uh, to be powered, um, is about the size of a basketball court. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty big. Pretty big. That's great. Well, as you mentioned, you mentioned the SpaceX rocket that will most likely take it into Earth orbit. Um, I'm curious, with the rise of SpaceX and Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, both are private rocket companies, what does the future of NASA look like? I'm curious if you got a sense of that and and the research that you were doing for the book. One of the great challenges that space exploration has always encountered, whether human or robotic, is the cost of access to space. It's hard to get to space, and it's expensive to get to space. Um, SpaceX and Blue Origin and, and a handful of other um, private, in, private enterprises are lowering the cost, right? So suddenly, prices are coming down by an order of magnitude. That's, that's enormously consequential for the exploration of the solar system because suddenly, you can, you can if in the case of human exploration, you can send a lot of cargo to Mars, which is going to be necessary, and you can do it for pennies on the dollar. You can send um, heavier spacecraft um, into space, or you can actually send spacecraft that could be assembled in orbit, for example. One mission proposal for Europa involved just such, a, uh, just such an enterprise. Europa Clipper does not, but um, that is something that's, that's always a possibility. Likewise, uh, multiple launches to build um, sophisticated space stations. Um, I, I would call the development of reusable rocketry probably the most consequential development in space exploration since the Apollo program, it's, it's seismic um, in terms of implication. That's great. Well, I know that you have a master of fine arts and creative writing from the university of Arkansas at Monticello. What was your MFA experience like? It was very good. The program was brand new at the time. Um, the instructors and professors were very, uh, eager to establish something that was respectable, something that um, that was serious, um, something that was doing something new or innovative. I think they succeeded um, because it was new. I, I was also a—I mean, I was an established writer at the time. Um, I, I one reason that I chose that particular place was because I didn't think they would you know, they would they would ruin my writing style. I think the MFA experience can sometimes be detrimental to writers. 
Um, so, but I, but I would call it enormously positive. The workshop experience is always a little, a little frustrating, right? And it's always hard to hear, uh, painful truths. Um, and it's, it's harder yet when you disagree with those, with those comments. But, um, my, uh, members of my cohort were, were wonderful. Um, there was a mutual respect, um, and, uh, there was an appreciation. There was a love of the written word and, and of course a love of literature and, and we got along famously. I'm still friends with, with most of them. Great. And were you working then primarily on nonfiction or were you working on fiction as well? Well, my MFA is in uh, creative writing with specializing in fiction. I, oh. at the time I was doing both. Um, I mean, I was making my living writing nonfiction. Right. Um, and creative nonfiction was something that was always on the radar, but ultimately I felt like what I was missing um, was, was a, a solid background and understanding of, of uh, the devices uh, of fiction. And of course that would, all of those things would apply to the nonfiction I would later write. I mean, I, I cannot overstate the value of that degree um, and that experience, but um, I, there, there is a novel in me. <laughs> I've been working <laughs> on one for a while. Um, I've had to put it aside because I have another, another book that I have to write uh, for my publisher after this one. So my next book, beyond that will almost certainly be fiction. That's great. Well, are you, you mentioned you're working on another book. Have you started it? Are you working on another book now? It depends if my editor's listening, if he's, if he's listening, then absolutely. I'm very far along and things are going great. Um, if he's not listening, um, I would say, um, research on this project, uh, was, 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 has been difficult, um, simply because of COVID. So the types of interviews that I do, um, are very patient. I mean, it takes a long time to build trust. Um, it takes a lot of years to write these books. Um, and it, it, it takes countless hours of, of conversations and, you know, talks over drinks and things like that to get people to, to, to put down the, the armor and reveal not just facts of their lives, but truths of their lives. Um, you just can't do that by zoom. It's just not something you can do remotely. It has to be in person. The pandemic has been, uh, devastating in that regard. Um, I've been able to do a lot of great research um, in the meantime, um, but it, 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 the process is going to take a while. It's going to be a, it's going to be a great book. I, I'm very excited about this book. It's about uh, it's about uh, expeditioners um, doing research in Antarctica. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's going to take a long time, but it'll be worth the wait in the end. Yep. Well, with the vaccines, hopefully it will will happen sooner rather than later of being able to talk to people over drinks. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Well, what writing advice would you offer for those who are writing their own stories or novels or nonfiction? I, I usually give um, writers the same advice. It's just read more. It's so easy to not read, um, particularly when you're on a deadline all the time. Freelance writers, I've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing this for over 12 years now. And there's never a day, not a single moment when I'm either not working or thinking about the work I have to do or thinking about pitches or thinking about, um, you know, revisions or edits or whatever. Um, but you've got to make time to read. You've got to add to your toolbox. It's, it's just invaluable. Moreover, I would suggest don't worry about the career of writing. 
in when you're worried about your craft. You need to worry more about the words you're putting on the page and less about how the business works. I know a lot of people spend so much time worrying about things like query letters or reading, you know, literary agent scare blogs, but they're those things aren't helping you. I mean, nobody cares. I mean, that stuff really doesn't matter at the end of the day, as long as those first, you know, 10 pages or whatever, when you're pitching your novel or or, or when you're submitting your novel or or submitting your um, proposal for a work of nonfiction, that's the stuff that has to be rock solid and, 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 um, and moving and, and poetic and um, eloquently written. You're right about that. Well, in terms of reading, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Um, I've been well, – I just reread Moby Dick. It's something that I read regularly because that's going to be a touchstone for the next book that I'm writing. Um, but I've, I've also been reading uh, uh, Kierkegaard. I've got Works of Love right here on my desk. Um, I've got uh, what else do I have right here? I've got The Pale King by David Foster Wallace. I've got uh, uh, Maggie Nelson's uh, work, uh, Bluets, um, Roddy Doyle's The Guts. These are, you know, these are just part of my regular uh, reading. I can't say that I sit down and, and just knock out a book. Usually, it's a little of this, a little of that, whatever, whatever takes my fancy. I'm a messy reader, I would say. Sure. <laughs> so, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your books? I can I can be reached at uh, at davidwbrown.com. Um I'm on Twitter at, at dwbwriter w r i t e r same at dwbwriter for Instagram. Um, and of course the book can be found at you know bookstores everywhere. Go to go to your local indie. Um, go to your library and request it. Uh, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, all the usual places that sell books. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with David Brown, author of the new book, The Mission. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And David, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much for having me today. Great. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money. 